0: Hey everybody, this is Phil Town.
1: This is Danielle Town. And we're
0: here for the Invested Podcast where we're learning how to invest from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger in particular.
1: Yes. Deep Value Investing.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I like that name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Deep Um, Value. Value Investing with a low number of purchases.
0: Somebody called it once Growth at a Reasonable Price, GARP Investing.
1: Growth at a reasonable price. Right. Which all is
0: right. Well, the thing is, value investors tend to follow Ben Graham, who's the father of value investing, mm-hmm. wrote a book called Security Analysis back in the 30s. It's still in print, and he's Buffett's mentor. But Buffett and Charlie Munger left that sort of hardcore buy 100 stocks that are all sort of cigar butts, you know, they're just a little bit left in them, and, and you buy them cheap. Um, and you buy a lot of them because some of them are going to go down. Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett took the principles from security analysis of how you figure out if a company is really good or not, and then they just focused on buying really good companies at a fair price. And they don't have a name for it. We call it Rule One Investing. Because what
1: Ben Graham did was buy cheap companies. Right. They didn't necessarily have to be good underlying companies. Right. He
0: was buying them so cheap in the Depression and during World War II that he was buying them for less- than the net cash on their balance sheet, wow, which was cheap, yeah, right? So Munger and Buffett said, you know what? It's better to buy a wonderful business. And the reason is, is because a wonderful business is going to generate its own internal growth. You don't have to do anything. You put your money in there. See, Ben always had to go back and find more um, value-type investments, which he could do a lot of in the Depression and World War II. But as it got harder in the 50s, Buffett learned that way but then it was like harder and harder to find anything. And you had and, and what Charlie pointed out is if if all we do is buy a couple of great companies, the compounded rate of return that those guys generate on their own earnings can make you rich all by themselves. Hmm. It's just knowing whether they're wonderful or not. And for that, we've played Charlie Munger a million times.
1: Yeah, okay, and we were times. at his <laughs> annual meeting, and we were at his annual awesome. meeting.
0: And he's basically following These four principles that we got to be sure we understand the business and we got to be capable of that. We have to make sure it has a moat, which is an an intrinsic characteristic, keyword intrinsic, built in. Characteristic that protects them from competition, like a a really good brand or a secret or some kind of, you you know, you have to go to a big trouble to switch away from this person to that Mm. person or something Mm -hmm. or that product. So those built in moats protect it from competition. Then you want to have good management. As I learned over time, many times <laughs> that management is a really big deal, and um, and then finally you want to buy it at some kind of margin of safety. So those are the key tenets. So um,
1: yeah, I mean, and and I think the interesting thing there is like, according to Charlie, the price is the last one. I mean, the Ben Graham original style was price is everything.
0: Price is everything.
1: And according to Charlie price the last consideration after you've found a wonderful business.
0: Yes, because even if you make a mistake on the price... The wonderfulness of the business will probably make things all right at the end.
1: well that's a good point. Yeah, probably, right? Well, Unless I, you buy it at like the very top of an ultra inflated market or something.
0: And even then,
1: and it's you, possible you'll come out okay. If you can okay. wait it out.
0: If you wait it if out. If you've
1: got the time.
0: <laughs> there was a really good real estate entrepreneur that a friend of mine told me about who was building and developing down in Turks and Caicos. And he uh-huh. told this guy, who's this guy's mentor, he told this guy, look, you know what I found out in 60 years of real estate investing? Time cured all my mistakes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, if time he, is a luxury some people can't afford. Exactly
0: <laughs> true. But with real estate, of course, the, the intrinsic characteristic that protects it from competition is location. And this guy just bought good locations. And if he paid too much, eventually time
1: yeah, that's worked in
0: his favor. right? Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what Charlie and, and Warren have found out is that time works in your favor when you've got a wonderful business. It works against you when you've got a crummy business. Yeah. Because eventually it's going to go down. So we want to focus on this podcast on the things that make a business wonderful. That those four characteristics or three characteristics, right? What we call the, you know, the meaning of the business and we like to think of businesses that match your values. Um, as a way of connecting deeply and trying to use your money as a vote for the future that you want to see.
1: Exactly, finding your mission.
0: Finding your mission and, and voting putting for the companies money there.
1: That, that have a mission you support.
0: Exactly, and then avoiding the problems that come with startups and with with new stage companies and IPOs and. Companies that really look like they might be great, you know, like a Tesla might be phenomenal and we want to invest in it because it matches our values. You are
1: preaching to the choir on Tesla, Dad. Mm -hmm. I really like it. I know.
0: I want it. I also
1: just want a Tesla. I mean, who doesn't want to put put
0: money with Elon Musk? I mean, who doesn't want to give that guy some money to to crank (laughs) it up with, you know, and you end up with your Tesla on Mars or something. It's just (laughs) going to be amazing the the way this guy thinks. But we have to be able to know... That with a high degree of comfort where that company is going to be in terms of its cash flow 10 years from now. And it's just impossible to know that with with a company like Tesla. So we have to put that one in the risky biz category, right? That's like rolling the dice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately,
0: but um, let's come back on that risky biz portfolio. It's about just real quickly. It's about 10% of my portfolio. I'm, I'm happy to put into companies that I can't really project out ten years. They're relatively new technologies, or they're just really great people, and I think they're going to do great. Um, but it makes investing really fun when you've got a little bit of money over here. You're willing to lose seven out of ten
1: hmm. of
0: those, and you know maybe three hit home runs. Yeah,
1: right. yeah. But it's- the
0: majority of our portfolio is focused on really wonderful businesses, which means they've got a track record that goes back, for my purposes, at least 10 years. I'd like to see you look at 10 to 15 years track records so that you can really see how this business is done through the business cycle,
1: which is typically
0: about a 10-year cycle.
1: Yeah, it's a long time.
0: Right. And what that means, of course, is that businesses, you know, the economy doesn't just go straight up all the time. It has recessions. And during recessions, some companies really have big problems. Buffett likes to say, you know, you never know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. (laughs) (laughs) I have not heard that one. (laughs) And it's really saying that these companies all look good when the the tide's coming in because it lifts all the boats, you know. But when the tide goes out, you're standing there and you got no shorts on. And that's that's because your company wasn't as wonderful as it looked like. So one of the things that makes a company wonderful is the ability, watch this transition. Oh, please. Is the ability of the company um, management to properly allocate capital this is what makes a business really great. This is one of the key things that a chief executive officer has to do, and that is to determine where to put the money that we've been making. In other words, where to put my money?
1: As the owner. As you, the owner. You, the owner, own the money.
0: I own the money. The
1: CEO's job is to allocate the money either to you or back into the business. Right, and this is
0: how I want you to think about it, Danielle. When you buy one share, you own the entire company. Think of it like this is the, I mean, I'm the, I'm the sole owner of this business. And these guys are using my money, which I've bought this company with, mm-hmm. and the earnings of, that I get, right, the free cash flow that's there, that's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. I can make you give it to me or you can reinvest it, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, we can't if we only own a share. But let's think like that because it changes the way you look at a business um, and it changes the way you invest.
1: Well, and when you are only buying... Let's say at any given time, you say you have four to five companies in your portfolio. I don't care if you own one share or 200 shares or 200,000 shares. It feels like a really big investment just from a percentage standpoint of how much money you have to invest.
0: Yeah, I love that. You're, you're seeing it that way. Um, and since we're, we are going to focus our portfolio very tightly and, you know, like you say, four, five, six, seven, eight company something like that. We should treat those like it's our only investment because it is kind of, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it feels like yeah. that. So, does it w- feel like that to you when you have only like four or five or whatever it is, major investments, a couple major investments?
0: Well, I'll tell you when when you were little, I took all of the money we had and all of your money I was saving for your college.
1: Oh, yes, mom told me.
0: <laughs> and I- And I put it into one investment and fortunately it worked out. So so I have to say that when I have 10 investments or 15 investments, I feel like I'm wildly diversified, right? That I have a lot of stuff. And I also feel like I have a lot on my plate when I have 10 or 15 companies because I've got to keep up with them all. Right. Which is another reason we want to keep it down to a a reasonable handful that we buy over time. So you're going to start off with one, two, three, and then you add to it as those are investments you've made. Now the price has gone up and you can't buy anymore because there's no margin of safety. You move on to other companies and you like that. The portfolio solar grows organically. And Hmm. ultimately what you're hoping is that
1: wait, grows so it has like more than. Say five or six. Companies? Well,
0: it's going to grow up organically to say, let's say about eight or ten. Okay. And then what you're hoping is that took maybe ten years to build that up, right? Mm-hmm. And then the business cycle is gone, mm-hmm. and now you can buy some more of the original ten, because now they've all gone on sale again. Mm-hmm. So when back in 2008, when the market was dropping like a brick, Buffett told all the people in Omaha at, at that big meeting he does every year, that he, he hopes that all of these stocks he owns would go down by 50%. And the, the, there was this audible moan in the, in the audience, like, oh, no, because it means Berkshire goes down, right? <laughs> and they didn't want their stock to go down. But it's because they don't understand how to invest. And these are fans, and they still don't get it, that you want the companies you're buying more of to go down. You, you you're, you're still consuming stocks, right? You don't want them to go up and run away from you until you don't have any more money to invest and you're starting to actually... Bring the money back out of your investment portfolio. But for most people listening to this, you're still in the investment mode and you want cheap stocks. And I have to say, um, we're going to go into, into some information here that Warren Buffett wrote up just last week uh, for his annual letter. Um, and I, I do want to just remind me to mention what he said about where he thinks things might go.
1: Dad, what did he say about where things might go? <laughs> Oh, you
0: okay. mean later. <laughs> okay, All right. I'm just going to say it right now. What he said was he, he said that the, the the business cycle or the, the, the economy goes through storms on a periodic basis regularly, typically, you know, on average of about 10 years. Now, this is pretty important. In other words, he doesn't say that in every year that he puts out a letter. He doesn't warn everybody that, hey, the business cycle is changing, right? It may be going through a new, a big turn. Um, so I pay a lot of attention when those words come out in one of his reports, because effectively he's saying it's been nine years since the last one, hmm. right? We are now entering our ninth year. We're entering, excuse me, we're entering our ninth year. And, um, and so in the next year or two, it wouldn't be unexpected that the market goes through a big drop because the economy is going through a recession. Okay. So,
1: so this is Berkshire Hathaway's annual letter. Yes. Which is written by Warren Buffett. Yes. And he puts it out publicly, just as every other public company executive puts their annual letter out publicly. And it just came out last week, just so people can like look it up.
0: Yep. So we, you can just Google Warren Buffett or Buffett uh, letter, and it'll come up, or Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letter. Um, what for, makes this and, unique? And this
1: one's for 2016. Yeah,
0: and this is 2016. What, what it'll come up with is a page that shows you that he has a letter there for every year back into the 1970s. And I would strongly recommend you read them all.
1: Yeah, you can also, this is what I've done, you can also get them, people have compiled them into books, and you can get them on Kindle, too, for like 99 cents, or I think there might even be a free one, and that's a really easy yeah, way to just, just read all it. of them, rather than downloading them individually, which is what you have to do from the, you can get right. them for free, you just have to download them individually.
0: These letters are so good, and and I love it that you're reading them, Danielle, because they are the essence of, of what we call rule one investing. They Buffett's going to tell you how to do it over the course of time. Um, And in this particular letter, he mentions that, hey, kind of like, hey, watch out, right? Because when it storms is when there's a a lot of fear in the market. And that fear is what we are looking for in order to buy in. Mm. We need fear. You know, ordinarily, the market prices things at, at the value or higher often than the value of the business. There's usually a pretty, a lot of optimism in the market. And that optimism can end up becoming irrational euphoria. And people are paying crazy prices. We don't want to be in the market then. We'd like, we'd like to own companies that go to that high. And then we'll sell them when it gets crazy high, like it is right now, by the way, crazy high. And then we want to have an opportunity to buy them back when the market comes down. So that's kind of the, the big news that he sort of hid in between the lines there. And also, um, which brought us to the letter this time when we're talking about buybacks, is that the allocation of capital um, by a CEO means that he can allocate money to growth. Let's say at Whole Foods, John Mackey can build more, build more stores,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: Um, well, you notice that John Mackey's closing some stores.
1: Yeah, he closed a couple right? stores. Yeah, and yeah. He opened up some other ones. I'm very personally familiar with one of the stores he's closing because it was right by where I lived in Boulder. Oh, gosh. And I think it's a good decision to close that store because it wasn't a very good location for them.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Cool. So he's closing seven stores. I know one of them quite well. And I would say that one's a good decision. So I'm going to go with the other six also being a good decision.
0: (laughs) And this is allocation of capital, right? Instead of spending money to fix them, he's closing them. And they'll open up stores that are better in their market. Or they're going to open up different kinds of stores. So this is one of the things a CEO does.
1: Would buying other companies be considered growth as well?
0: Buying other companies can be the way a lot of companies try to grow. This is what CEOs do when they're good CEOs. They'll buy companies, Mm -hmm. particularly right now when interest rates are so low, they're trying to acquire companies. Um, But often they'll pay far too much for them um, Mm -hmm. in an attempt to grow, right? Mm -hmm. They want to look like the business is growing so they buy companies, pay whatever price they have to pay. And in this market, it's a high price. Mm -hmm. So you pay this big price. And then what happens is you return on equity, which is what you use to buy the company, or you return on invested capital, which is if you borrowed money to buy the company, goes down because you paid too much, so you can't get a high rate of return on the money you paid, right? It's like paying too much for a piece of real estate that you're going to rent. Okay. Okay? So let's say that your standard operation is generating 10% return on equity, and now you buy this piece of real estate that you just really want so you can say you've got five pieces of real estate, and you pay ridiculous prices, and your overall return on equity goes down to 6%. Because you, you're not getting very much rent on that property for the mm-hmm. amount you paid for it, mm-hmm. so the the, the we wall- that's one of the reasons we follow return on equity and return on invested capital so closely is because it tells us when the CEO is starting to allocate badly,
1: hmm. Hmm. right?
0: And again, remember it's well,
1: interesting, yeah, because like again, back to that store in Boulder that that Whole Foods is closing, yeah. Whole Foods, back in the day, a long time ago, bought its only main competitor, which was Wild Oats, which was a Boulder, Colorado, original chain of grocery stores um, that were pretty much like Whole Foods. You know, they were focused solely on yeah. It was a major organic, competitor for Whole Foods, huge national competitor that started in Boulder, and Whole Foods bought them. And inherited a whole bunch of stores that whole, that Wild Oats had managed. And that store that they're closing in Boulder was the original Wild Oats store.
0: Very interesting. And they
1: kept it open this long, even though it's really not in a great spot. I think just because it had, had that history. And, and now they're being a little more ruthless, with yeah. their, which they should be. Which they need to be. They need to be.
0: And that's one of the powerful things that competition does, is it makes you make hard decisions. Yep. Right.
1: But it's an interesting way that, to think about, like, okay, that you buy a company, here's this sort of other stuff that shows up into your company, other culture, other decisions that somebody else made to open that store in particular, you know, Yep. Um, that might have been different than Whole Foods themselves would have done.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's one of the biggest problems when companies are acquiring other companies. When you're looking at a business and you see that it's growing by acquisition, Um, And you can see the acquisitions, by the way, on the cash flow statement.
1: Mm. It has a
0: line called acquisitions. Oh,
1: that's good.
0: um, And you just look at it and you can see that they're spending tons of money or they're spending no money on acquisitions. But wait,
1: does it tell you if they used cash or stock or like how they...
0: It shows you the cash that they used. Okay. If they use stock, it's going to show up um, on um, stock, also on a line that says stock uh, that was distributed. Hmm. So okay. you, you, you want to know that the CEO is making these acquisitions and he's being smart about it, right? Um, so a bad CEO is going to buy stuff just to get bigger and the return on equity and invested capital is going to go down. His debt is going to go up and you see it all the time because they just want to get bigger in the five years that they're the CEO. Mm -hmm. And those guys destroy more companies doing those kinds of things. It's very difficult for a company to acquire another company and integrate its culture and values and have it really be accretive or add to... The overall value of the business.
1: Accretive, good word.
0: Accretive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> good word.
1: No, it is, it, like, mergers are fascinating to me, not just from a, like, legal, like, how do you put it together standpoint, but, like, what happens after everyone's signed on the dotted line and the money has moved? It's hard to put companies together. It is. It's hard to put employees together who worked for completely different companies that were often competitors. It is.
0: I mean, it's really scary for people when that happens because they know that there's going to be... Multiple people for the single position, and they don't know if they're on the chopping block. Yep. And often what happens is the people who can move the easiest, who are your best people, mm-hmm. you know, they've always got headhunters out there knocking on their door. Yeah. They start answering the door.
1: Yeah, because there's so much uncertainty. Yeah,
0: they're yeah. not sure that they're going to be appreciated in this new culture, yeah. and bam, they're gone.
1: So that's one thing that CEOs can do with capital is buy companies. Yep.
0: They can buy companies. Another thing they can do is they can, um, they can grow their own company, right? Just Mm -hmm. internally grow. Mm -hmm. And another thing they can do is they can give the money back to shareholders in the form of a dividend, Mm -hmm. right? So they just pay the cash out um, that they don't need. We like
1: that, we like that. Which is
0: great. And another thing they can do is they can repurchase their own stock. Yes, buybacks. Buybacks, right? And these share repurchases can be really, really good accretive to the owner or really, really bad and be wasting his money. So when you're looking at a company and you see that they buy back stock, you want, you have to hope that they treat the purchase of their own shares the way that they would treat acquiring another company. Hmm. They not that they have to look at the management team, right, or anything, but that the value that they're getting when they buy this thing is substantially accretive to the shareholders of the business, that they're getting it for a bargain.
1: So they want to buy their company, essentially, at a good price. At
0: a good price. And the problem with share buybacks, particularly in this era with super cheap, artificially cheap money, which means businesses can can, can borrow money from banks, really good companies, at super low interest rates, And then go buy back stock with it, Mm, right? mm, mm -hmm. And now why why would a CEO buy back his stock and pay a very high price for that? Why would they do that? Why would they be so stupid, right? Well, the first argument is that CEOs went to business school and in business school, they told them that the price equals the value. (laughs) (laughs) And so he has an automatic answer. to that. (laughs) Which is really no joke. It's an automatic answer. You can't hurt me because the business school people told me that price equals value. So if IBM is at $200 and I'm buying back the stock, and then IBM is at $120 and I'm buying back the stock, you can't criticize me because both, neither of those are on sale. Neither of those are overpriced. It's just, it is what it is, right? And IBM CEOs have been buying back stock using that excuse for 20 years. They've bought back half of the company. And sometimes they pay oops, just ridiculous prices and every once in a while they pay super cheap prices, but often what they do is they buy stock back more when things are good than they do when things are bad, and that means they're usually paying too much,
1: hmm. which
0: is really unfortunate that, that CEOs don't think, what is the value of my business, right?
1: Well, I'm sure they do think that. They're just thinking, as you said, that the value is whatever the price on the open market is. Right,
0: How, how comf- I mean, that's pretty convenient, right?
1: The yeah, price is right. what it is
0: in the open market. That's the price of my business. That's the, the value of, of my business. Yeah. All right? Well, so, so I can buy back the stock. By the way, what <clears> they're
1: <throat> doing here, and somebody asked me this when we first mentioned buybacks. Um, they said, like, they buy them from individual shareholders, right? And they right. don't. No, but they do. They, no, they don't. They buy them on the open market. Right. They that's buy true. stock that outstanding stock that's available. On the market, and it happens to be, yes, from people who own. Oh, okay. But it's not like they call up people and say, no, We're, no, no. We're forcing <clears throat> you to sell your shares or no, something. They no, don't. they don't. They don't like call back shares by force. What it is is people who want to sell on the market just right. happen to be selling it to the company. Sure. And then once the company buys the shares, those shares just become part of the company's float of shares, and it essentially makes it so that there are fewer shares available in the market.
0: Right. They, they essentially put those shares out of, they take those shares out of the outstanding shares. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they're not so,
1: available to be purchased anymore.
0: They're not available to be purchased, and the total number of shares goes down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is real important, because if the total number of shares just went down and you own shares...
1: Your shares just became more valuable.
0: Well, at the very least, they, you just own more of the company. Which
1: you would have a higher
0: them, percentage of the company.
1: Yeah, which would make them more valuable.
0: Theoretically, possibly. They might would. be the
1: same price, but they represent a greater portion.
0: Yeah, they represent a greater portion. It's, I mean, think of it like a pizza, right? If you've got four pieces of pizza there yeah, and four owners, and one of the owners wants to get rid of his pizza you could buy that back and then now there would only be three pieces and you'd smear you'd smear the goo around right smear around the sauce so you wouldn't see where it was cut and then you'd recut it right. and now there's three pieces yeah so you went from a 25% ownership to a 33% ownership just because somebody bought
1: back which the by definition makes <clears> it more valuable as right?
0: long as the company is still selling for more money for that same yeah, amount and of money yeah i mean i guess
1: if the company like dramatically dropped by whatever seven percent or eight percent or whatever that is yeah and why would it would be
0: well because you just took a bunch of money out of the treasury that helped produce the value of the business and you gave it to somebody
1: so that's not actually what happens in real life what tends to happen on the market when companies buy back shares is the stock price goes up interesting because people start thinking "Ooh, they know something i don't know
0: (laughs) well that that can be the case um particularly if the company is buying aggressively, because what happens is people who are trading in a stock often are looking for a stock to to do what's called floor up.
1: Floor up.
0: Yes. In other words, the stock is dropping from 170 uh, to 169, 168, 167. And then at 165, it stops going down and starts going sideways day after day. And in this example, the reason it's going sideways day after day is because the company is out there buying stock at 165. The CEO's decided that's where he's going to buy in. Okay. So now you've got this big buyer. He might have $5 billion to spend. And day by day, he's buying the stock at 165. And pretty soon other people look at that and go, well, let me see. He's announced he's buying back stock. That's public information.
1: Okay. The
0: board has approved a certain amount of money to do it with. Yeah. Public information. Yeah. And now we see the stock price stopping at 165. The CEO may be buying back stock, so now I'm going to start buying it because it probably has hit the floor and it's not going to go down anymore. It'll probably bounce and go back up. That's <laughs> called flooring up. And traders work off of that all the time.
1: You're talking about kind of a trend of uh, over time, people see that that particular company doesn't seem to go below one sixty five.
0: Right, it hits yes. that price point over and over again and bounces back up. Okay. Microsoft was famous for this for years in the two thousands because they were buying back their own stock at pretty much anything under nineteen bucks. Hmm. They were flooring up over and over and over again, so hmm. people started trading that, and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, right, definitely. IBM's a bit like that actually. They 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 definitely buy back a lot of their own stock. So what's 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 problematic about that? Well, if they're buying back their stock at a at a higher price than the value of the business, um, they're taking money out of your pocket and destroying it. They should they shouldn't be buying the stock for more than it's worth, because they're essentially let's say the stock is worth, the company's worth ten dollars a share, and they're paying fifteen dollars a share to buy the stock. At some point, price and value are going to meet up. And this company's stock price is going to be at that fifteen or at that ten dollar level. They've been buying the stock at fifteen, and now here it is at ten. They could have bought it at ten. So instead of getting one big piece of pie, they get you know a small piece of pie for the same amount of cash that you had in there. So it's very important that companies that that you look and see that the companies are buying the stock when you think it's on sale. Right. So Warren Buffett wrote about that a bunch in his letter. I think you guys should go read this letter. I mean, just point out real quickly where to find this information about share repurchases on the letter. So remember, you just Google Buffett shareholder letter and then click on the, 19, or the 2016 letter and go to page seven and you'll see something called share repurchases. And he said, he starts it off saying, in the investment world discussions about share repurchases often become heated. <clears throat> but I'd suggest that participants in this debate take a deep breath. Assessing the desirability of repurchases isn't that complicated. Oh, dear. (laughs) All right. So assessing the desirability isn't that complicated. So essentially what he's going to tell you that I'm going to leave alone and you go read it (laughs) is that if, if a CEO is buying back his own stock, he has to apply exactly the same kind of criteria he would when he's going to acquire another business. And by applying that criteria and recognizing that he's buying it at a bargain he's doing the right thing. If he doesn't and and he's not buying it at a bargain, he's doing the wrong thing. It's that simple. But read exactly what Buffett has to say because you'll get a great education there. It's pretty short and it's very clear and you'll learn about buybacks. And then we'll talk about that next time.
1: Yeah, let's, let's talk about it more, you guys. Check out the letter. We'll talk about the buybacks in the letter next time, and we'll talk about the rest of the letter as well.
0: Okay, sounds good.
1: The Oracle of Omaha has spoken again.
0: Absolutely, and man, when he speaks, people listen all over the world, and so should you.
1: It's like crazy huge news, this letter. Yeah. I had no idea.
0: It's really unbelievable. I mean, it's like almost
1: front page news. Absolutely. Buffett wrote a letter.
0: Absolutely. Period. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Because he he speaks truth and he speaks truth to power. And it's, and he's laying it out there. And you'll see in this letter, he talks to some very powerful people in a very sort of tough way. We'll get to that next week.
1: Yeah, sounds good. All right. Thanks, Until everybody. Time
0: to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to InvestedPodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor Have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary? So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only. And I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.